I am excited about this series in a way that I don't think I have been for a preaching series uh, in a while. There's, there's something exciting to me about jumping in and doing a bit of a deep dive in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. That is getting me really excited. I, I think where this comes from is out of this place of like who we consider ourselves to be as Christians. As, as followers of Jesus, as, as disciples, when we boil it down and when we like set aside all of the trappings that we often import into it, it is a life lived with Jesus. And how do we do that? We live life following Him, trusting in Him, walking in His footsteps by His grace. And so as we dive into this sermon, as we spend the next 17 weeks unpacking bit by bit, we're going to run into passages that are overly familiar for many of us, that we probably need to be reminded of the shock value of them. We're going to encounter some things that are uncomfortably direct in how Jesus is speaking to us, the kind of life and living he's inviting us into, but What he's inviting us to is life-giving, it's transformative, and it's an invitation to participate in a new way of life, in what Jesus calls the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, a way of walking, going about life made new with him. And this is what it looks like to be part of the kingdom. Now, before we jump in, I, I think we need to do a little bit of a recap. If you like watch a show on Netflix or something, often if you're jumping back into a series, there's like a recap moment you can skip beforehand, right? To like previously on whatever. And in order to kind of get the context for this sermon, we need to do the recap. So previously in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is leading us along in the story of of Jesus's life. And in Matthew chapter 4, it begins by telling us of Jesus' time where he was tempted in the desert for 40 days, like in this one-on-one encounter with the devil, where the devil is trying to convince him to go about, uh, to go about life in a different way than what God has designed for him, to, to go and to use his power as the incarnate Son of God in ways that are an abuse of it. Or to receive all the affection and, and, and authority of the world without going through the cross. And Jesus rejects the temptation. And he comes back from the wilderness. And Matthew says that from this time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is kind of the start of Jesus' ministry. After his baptism, he spends these 40 days fasting in the wilderness and then comes back, and this is his big announcement. These are his big first public words. And so he spends time going around northern Israel in the Galilee region, around the Sea of Galilee, and he starts inviting people to come and to be his disciples. We, we hear about the first disciples he invites, brothers Peter and Andrew and brothers James and John. These two fishermen that left their family livelihood to come and to follow a rabbi around the countryside as he went from town to town. Imagine like what dad's thinking, right? Like I was going to leave this business in your hands 
and you're going into following this man across the countryside. But we continue to read, Matthew says that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among people. News about him spread all over Syria. Large crowds from Galilee, from the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, from Judea, and the region across the Jordan River came and followed him. This is where we're led up to beforehand. But I think it's important for us to have a conversation before jumping into the sermon of what is this kingdom of heaven? What is it that Jesus is talking about here? Because this is like the main point that he's saying. This is his first public words to those who would listen. Repent for the kingdom of God has come near or how I've loved hearing it phrased, maybe in a way that we would hear a bit more easily. Turn around. Come experience God's way. What is the kingdom of heaven? Well, maybe for you, when you think of the kingdom, you think of the words in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that's helpful for us to kind of make sense of it, that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is the influence of God's reign where things work His way, where things flourish because they are done in partnership with God under his rule. Which often means it's a major shift away from how the kingdom of the world would do things. From how our culture or society has been set up to do it, how our natural tendency as human beings is to see things. Where the kingdom of God is things thriving under the reign and rule of God. Things thrive because they're done his way. And the spoiler alert that is here is Jesus is hinting at, and this kingdom has come in me. That this kingdom is present and is available now because I am here. And for us to hear Jesus' words and know that to follow Jesus as our king is to be part of the kingdom of heaven. To be part of what he's doing. To be part of this new way of living life that thrives. What it also means for the first hearers of this news in Jesus's day is, is it means that God is the one who is reigning even more so than Caesar in Rome, where the land that they lived in was part of the Roman Empire, and they were under the boot of the Romans who, you know, if, if the, the Jewish people got a little too rowdy, they were more than happy to send in the military to snuff anything out. They didn't have the freedom that they longed for. They didn't have the independence and the sense of we are the kingdom of God's people. They were living under the reign of Caesar, under Rome. But this kingdom means that even despite that, there is someone greater who's reigning. The kingdom of God means that the tyranny of sin and of sickness and of the power of the enemy is being pushed back because God is coming to reign. And we even see this in Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, that he goes around the countryside, he's proclaiming the kingdom, and he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. That part of God's kingdom coming in Jesus means that the reign of sin and death and the enemy is being pushed back. Glimpses of the reign of God. What it means is there is a place 
where people can experience flourishing in relationship with the Creator who loves them. And so Jesus announces, turn around, come experience God's way. So, People hearing and seeing what Jesus is up to as he's preaching in synagogues and healing the sick, this group of this crowd of of people from all over the place come and they start following him around. Let's see what he does next. Let's see who he heals next. What does he what is he going to do? And Jesus, seeing these crowds starting to amass around him, went up on the mountainside and sat down as Matthew records and his disciples came to him. Now, we know Peter, Andrew, James, John, maybe more, we're, we're not sure. And he began to teach them. And what's interesting here is this sermon that he teaches from the mountainside, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is the kind of event where even after it's preached, we read in Matthew 7, 28 and 29, that when he finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law, not as the people they're used to preaching in the synagogues or interpreting how God is at work in the world. And this morning, whether you're here as a disciple, as someone who self-identifies as like, I'm on board with Team Jesus, or you are like part of the crowd where you are intrigued but not ready to commit, Jesus has something for you where the crowds afterwards were amazed by this man, that there's something about what he is saying that is drawing me to him. And my prayer for us, as we're working through Jesus' sermon over the next several weeks, is not just that we would know these words more, but man, that we would be drawn closer to Jesus. That we would not just know about him, or not just know what he is inviting us into, but that we would fall in love with the one who's saying these words. There's something about him. So as we dive into this sermon, would you pray with me? Jesus, as we look at your words this morning together, my prayer is that you would speak to us through them by your spirit, that you would cut to the very deepest places of us and show us how the kingdom of God is is come, is in you, and that everything we need is found there. Would we know you through this? Not just more information about the Bible, but would you do the deep work of transformation as we work through your words together? Amen. So here we go. We're starting the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, where Jesus says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, 
for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, those keeners among you who took your Bible study package home last week and have already worked through the Beatitudes, what is the number one thing that stands out as we read this passage? What first jumps and hits your eye as we read it? It's the blessed, isn't it? Nine times we see this same phrase over and over and over about all these different kinds of people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And this passage is often called throughout church history the Beatitudes, which comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. And so this kind of nine phrases about these nine groups of people that are considered blessed have been called the Beatitudes. But I think the number one question that we probably have in reading this is, what does it mean to be blessed or blessed? Like, what is he even saying here? Is it like, for us, the word blessed, like, it's just such a numb religious word that often is like, it's a hashtag in a post when you got your, like, nice new Stanley mug for Christmas. Like, it's not the, it doesn't carry the connotation that it did back then to us today. And there have been ways where the Beatitudes have been talked about throughout church history that I think were done with the best of intention, but I don't think get at the heart of what Jesus is actually saying here. So to start off, these blessed sayings, these Beatitudes, this is not a list of what it means to be a good Christian. This is not how to get God to bless you. And it's also not a list of like, these are the entry requirements to the kingdom of God. Like if you want to be in, you got to be, you got to check all these boxes. That's not what it is. And sometimes our Bible translations even lead us into those kinds of ways of reading it. I love the New Living Translation, but its translation of the Beatitudes is atrocious. What does Jesus mean? when he says, blessed are these people. What Jesus is saying with blessed is that the kingdom of heaven flips our worldly expectations on their heads. It means that flourishing, that living the good life isn't found where we expect it. It's found among the kind of people you'd least expect. It's found among the ragtag crowd of people that are gathered around Jesus trying to figure out what this guy is all about. It's found in those that you wouldn't expect to be those who are getting ahead in life, who you wouldn't look at and say they are living a blessed life. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven 
is coming and is causing flourishing in the lives of those you'd least expect. So instead of reading, blessed are the poor in spirit, as, uh, as some translations put it, or some interpretations throughout the years have been, that blessed are those who recognize their spiritual need, which is often as Protestants, we love like people who are repentant and ready for the gospel. And so we read the beatitude through that lens. And I understand that, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. Instead, Jesus is saying, those who have never been religious enough for religious people, those who in Jesus' day were like outside of the temple system, that like they were never like clean enough to be in the temple and participate in the ways of knowing God that was expected of them, and they were looked down their nose at because of that. Those of us today who feel like, I don't know if I understand my Bible enough to like really feel like I know what's going on with this. Jesus is saying you're going to flourish because the kingdom of heaven is for you. For those who mourn, instead of their lives being marked by this tragedy where in Jesus' day, say if you were a widow, you then are marked for the rest of your life as someone who is meant to live a life of grieving. But Jesus, in his pronouncement of the Beatitudes, is saying instead of your life being completely ruined by tragedy, you can flourish because there is a unique closeness God chooses to have with you because he is your comforter in the kingdom of God. You're going to flourish in the kingdom of heaven. For the meek, those who lose in the dog-eat-dog rat race of the world, those who aren't the initiative takers, those who aren't entrepreneurial, those who don't speak up for themselves and therefore they get stamped upon, those who they don't know where they want to go to dinner when you ask them, like, where are we eating tonight? And then they suddenly get like passive aggressive and angry once they're finally backed into a corner because everything has been bundling up for a while. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is for you and in this upside down kind of life, you're going to be the ones on top. The world is, belongs to the meek. For those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who have been starved of justice, or who are even cringing under the weight of their own shortcomings, who, who find themselves in this spot where they have found out that good guys finish last, or that the system doesn't actually work, and this frustration and, in fact, almost anger, he says, your hunger and thirst will be satisfied in God's kingdom. You're going to thrive with Jesus. To the merciful, who in Jesus' world where might makes right and you flex your power as a way of like, this is what it means to do well in life, that mercy is for the weak. Jesus says you're going to thrive in the kingdom because you will actually receive mercy. To the pure in heart, this is, this is the one where we're like, this must be like the ideal that I'm supposed to pursue, to be pure in heart. But I think what it might even more be speaking at is like the Pharisees who sought to be pure in heart, 
that nothing was good enough for them. For those who are always pointing out errors in your thinking or beliefs or way of parenting, the ones who are annoyingly religious or want to appear to be so, the ones where nothing is quite good enough for, he says, you're going to thrive because you will see God. And in the face of his perfection, your longing for things to be the, the, your, your, your sense of nothing is ever good enough will be broken apart in the face of him who is perfect in the kingdom of God. To the peacemakers, the one who's trusted by neither side because you're not on their side, the one who's caught in the middle of the tricky family conflict or divorce, the one who hasn't made a strong enough statement against your enemy or for your side for you to be comfortable with them. Jesus says you're going to thrive in the kingdom of God because there's a family resemblance where the God who is the reconciler of all things can be seen in you those who are attacked for standing for what's right, the advocate who is outcast or the whistleblower who is threatened, the one who keeps bringing up the same justice issue and is therefore like everyone just rolls their eyes at them. The kingdom of God is for you. The one whose reputation can't be redeemed because they've been labeled as foolish or dangerous or on the wrong side of history because of their allegiance for Jesus, he says, you are another link in a long line of those who have sought to be faithful and the kingdom is for you. Your reward is in heaven. As we look at this list, what it is not, it is not these people who are blessed because they are the most moral or ideal humans. It's not the list of these are the perfect Christian attributes what it is, is these people who, because they are participants in a life with God, that brings flourishing. Despite where they sit in society, where they sit in relationship with others. And I think this begs a question for us, is like, what does our culture at this time tell us it means to flourish? Where do we go when we are looking for the good life? What, who do, does our society, what does our kingdom of the world tell us these people are flourishing? Usually it's the young, attractive, healthy, financially secure, charismatic, talented, good social media presence, did well in school. These are those who flourish. But what if being part of the kingdom of heaven, walking with Jesus, enables us to flourish even if we don't fit those categories? What if flourishing comes from somewhere else? True flourishing. What if it doesn't fit our categories? A man named Dallas Willard uh, wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy, which is based on the Sermon on the Mount and is kind of a deep dive into it. And if you if you read one book on what it, of, of on Christian faith this year, read the Divine Conspiracy. And he, in his reflection on the Beatitudes, kind of writes a a list of 
how we might receive it today based on who do we consider to be those who are flourishing and how the Beatitudes would land. He says, blessed are the physically repulsive. Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, the misshapen, the deformed. The too big, the too little, the too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are all riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. He goes on to say, the flunkouts, the dropouts, the burned outs, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time. The overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, or the children of parents who are not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved, or the emotionally dead, on and on and on. Is it true that earth has no sorrow, that heaven cannot heal? It is true. That is precisely the gospel of heaven's availability, the kingdom of the heavens, that comes to us through the Beatitudes. And you don't have to wait till you're dead. Here's what I think we need to grasp from this. First, what Jesus is getting across is you are blessable that this kingdom of heaven is for you. You might not be religious enough and you might not have your stuff together enough in a way where your neighbors or your parents or whoever would say that you are flourishing. But Jesus invites us into a different kind of flourishing. You might be the kind of person where like your business is doing well, you're incredibly healthy, like your kids behave so dang annoyingly well. And the invitation here isn't to say, oh, the kingdom of God's not for you. It's just for the people who are really messed up. It's also to say, and your flourishing is not found in those things. It's found in life with Jesus. I love how Willard says, and you don't have to wait till you're dead. Because if we look closely at the text, in almost all of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are these people, for they will experience this. Are is a in the present word. Will means in the future. And it's easy for us to talk about, oh, someday when Jesus returns and makes all things new, of course we won't have to mourn. Of course, our our longing for justice will be perfectly satisfied. But he's also saying, you can flourish now in the kingdom. I'm here. And I am present to you. Jesus longs to enter life with you and to walk with you in a way where you can experience flourishing with him. Wherever you are on this list of all these people, And yes, one day it'll be fully realized. And the last thing I think that Jesus is wanting us to grasp, whether we consider ourselves like the disciples sitting at the feet or we are kind of the curious crowds just kind of eavesdropping on whatever Jesus might do next, 
We should be shocked by who is invited. Then ask, how can we invite the people that Jesus are inviting? Who are the people that make you uncomfortable? Who are the people that you're like, oh, they do not have it together. Jesus is celebrating the fact that his kingdom can bring flourishing to the lives of these people. Maybe you are that person, and you're just like longing for someone to see you the way that you're learning Jesus sees you. What does it look like to open up our homes and our tables to invite in the kind of people that our neighbors would kind of cringe at, oh, I saw so-and-so pull up to your house? Because the kingdom of God is for them. We're invited into a life with Jesus to walk and step with Him. To be participants in His kingdom that is one day coming but has been here. And we get to be part of it. Under the reign of God that things flourish. Let's invite like Jesus does. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank You that You see us. And I'm sure there's probably each of us that in one way or another we, we identify with the, someone on the list that you have said or in the reflections of what the Beatitudes might mean for us. Where we feel like we are not. We're not flourishing in the ways that we've been told we're supposed to flourish. We don't have it all together in the way that we think we are. And would we receive your words that that the flourishing of your kingdom is for us? And would we turn that around on others to be able to, to love and to welcome and proclaim the good news that the kingdom of heaven is near? Would we listen to your words, Jesus, to turn around and to experience life God's way. It's in your name we pray. Amen.